Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Marie Brennan. Alchemists, I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Marie Billado. And you've tuned in to a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed, astonishing creators, never-ending quests. It's how we roll here at the Roundtable. It really, really is. Damn right. <laughs> Marie, we, we've been we've been separated for like a month. We put the Roundtable on hiatus during con season because I was losing my mind. Uh, but I gotta say, it is a genuine delight to hear your voice on the other end of the Skype line. It's like you're right here beside me in the virtual studio. Welcome back. Thank you, and I am right beside you. Oh my God! <laughs> She's calling from inside the studio. <laughs> I have missed you as well, and your laughter, my friends. Oh, so it's great to be back. It is. I, I agree. I agree. What, what are you drinking this fine afternoon, ma'am? I am drinking a semi- crappy cup of coffee that I'm enjoying nonetheless. <laughs> Even bad coffee is good. I get you. <laughs> I get you. Well, we'll sit back, ma'am. Relax. Take a swig on that cup of joe and uh, uh, allow me to introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I? Of course, please. I insist. <laughs> well, as long as you insist. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, Marie, I have long held the opinion that the most valuable quality in any writer is curiosity. Curiosity drives you to open doors, to, to look under beds, and to scrutinize the things that we usually take for granted. And from that perspective, then, curiosity is kind of the engine of a successful writer. Now, of course, that's just my opinion, but if it's true, then our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With is the literary equivalent of a V8 Hemi engine of curiosity. Uh, now, how did I arrive at that conclusion? Well, allow me to illuminate you. Uh, she grew up in Texas and spent most of her summers in the pool. Uh, and judging from what many of my Texan friends tell me about summers in the Lone Star State, that sounds like a very reasonable lifestyle choice. Uh, now, we all love to splash around in the pool as kids, but she loved the water so much, she later joined the swim team and, by all accounts, mastered the butterfly stroke, one of the most arduous of the swimming styles. Now, one summer, a babysitter taught our guest host and her brother and some of the neighbor kids how to make books by gluing paper onto fabric and cardboard. Now, you can't make a book without putting some words into it, and this she did, crafting a taut and harrowing mystery tale featuring a heroine named Jessica and a stolen cat. Sadly, this searing piece of thriller fiction never made it to full print production. Uh, but, hey, she had written a story. It had begun. Now, she also developed an interest in other cultures early on. She read the big yellow Dolaire's Book of Greek Mythology and went on to get hooked on Celtic and Japanese culture and history. And she was dancing studying ballet from the age of 5 to 18 and but wait there's more she studied piano starting at the age of 6 and the French horn in junior high 
Now, I, I can hear you, what you're all thinking. You say, well, well clearly she's a prodigy. Uh, but actually, no. Well, she might be, actually. I don't know. Our, our, our stalkerish research did not go that deep. But, but, but here's my perspective on this. See, around 9 or 10, she read the novel Fire and Hemlock by Diane Wynne-Jones, and that experience sparked something in her. She wanted to tell stories, not just in her mind or to her friends. She wanted to be a writer. Now, and in her own words, this is from a, a blog post she wrote for Alex Delamonica's blog, I wanted to be a published writer. I never had any doubt I would make it. Which wasn't just hubris, at least not once I grew up and learned how publishing works. So much of the game is a matter of persistence. And that's something that was totally under my control. I could only lose if I quit. And I wasn't going to quit. So, there you go, gang. How do you master the butterfly stroke, dance ballet, study foreign cultures, play piano and French horn all before the age of 18? You don't quit. Bam. Now, through junior high and high school, she was rocking the fan fiction, even before it had the name fan fiction, inserting herself into the novels and stories that she loved. Then, at the end of high school, two things happened. One was that she got to volunteer on two archaeological digs, which pretty much locked in her delight in studying other cultures. The other thing that happened was that she was struck by two story ideas, unique ideas, her own stories, and every writer can relate to this experience. The ideas had weight, substance. It was like seeing the tip of an iceberg and knowing the full epic mass of the thing was just waiting below the surface. Now, she carried those ideas with her into college, Harvard to be precise, where she pursued undergraduate studies in, what a shock, archaeology and folklore. Uh, she also joined the Harvard Radcliffe Science Fiction Association, an organization she would go on to co-chair. Now, with a community of like-minded literati encouraging and supporting her, by the end of the summer of her freshman year of college, she had half a novel written. And by October 1999, it was done. Now, this was one of those neither fish nor fowl stories that publishers are utterly baffled by. But friends, in 2012, 13 years later, it was published, by God, by Bookview Cafe and titled Lies and Prophecy. Refer back to the persistence factor we mentioned earlier in the interview. Um, and I did mention she did get two ideas, right? She started writing on that other idea she had, and by the turn of the millennia, that novel was done too. Now, that one was called Doppelganger, and it sold in 2004, and incidentally was repackaged in 2008, along with its sequel into the duology of Warrior and Witch. Plus, in 2004, she sold her first short story, White Shadow, set in the Nine Lands universe. And she had her treatise on Mesoamerican calendars published as well. It was a fabulous year, right? Well, yeah, but life, it's not without its challenges. Now, while all this was going on, she had completed her undergraduate work and had started pursuing a PhD at Indiana University, not in archaeology, but cultural anthropology. The switch was inspired by one of Ursula K. Le Guin's essays that awoke the awareness that she could actually study science fiction and fantasy and the community around them, which she did. 
and she was kicking ass in the pursuit. But as anyone can tell you, publishing a book isn't just something you tick off your to-do list. There's edits and promotion and a whole smorgasbord of mayhem that comes along with that publisher's phone call. Plus, she had launched into writing an epic story arc that would go on to become the Onyx Court series. The first book, Midnight Never Come, was requiring a massive amount of research into Elizabethan England. So. PhD, published novel, writing and researching another novel, something had to give. Now, around that same time, the company her husband worked for went bankrupt. And that professional detonation kind of shook loose all of their moorings. They decided to move to San Francisco, but it wasn't an easy choice. I mean, look at her background. Our guest host is not one to leave something unfinished. Fortunately, she had a couple of professors, Anna Royce in anthropology and Henry Glassie in folklore, who helped point out that success takes many forms and that her gifts could be applied in a multitude of ways to the betterment of the world. And friends, ain't that the truth? She has let her curiosity lead her to marvelous places, and she has generously allowed us to tag along through her rich and wondrous fiction. All totaled, our guest host has published over a dozen in novels, including the astonishing Lady Trent series that led off with A Natural History of Dragons, and the incredible scope and wonder of the Onyx Court series. She's published almost two dozen short stories and numerous nonfiction articles, and has been nominated for the Prix Imaginale, the World Fantasy Award, and recognized by numerous year's best anthologies for horror, fantasy, and sci-fi which really is kind of weird because she kind of just writes five fantasy. Uh, but hey, you know, tomato, tomato. She is a black belt in Shorin Ryu Karate, which she says doesn't mean you're done, just that you're ready to get started. Uh, she has traveled to 16 foreign countries and used to be able to translate Latin and Old Norse pretty well. She picked out her pen name before she was 15, showing incredible savvy and forethought in thinking that Bryn Neuenschwander might might be a tough name for fans to wrap their heads around, and she is a major gaming nerd whose blog series Dice Tales is a must-read for any aficionado and gourmand of storytelling through the medium of role-playing games. Dear friends, please welcome to the big comfy chair here at the round table, Marie Brennan. Marie, holy crap uh your 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 background your heritage your legacy you know I, I have a tendency to make people's backgrounds sound like superhero origin stories but yours is ma'am i cannot tell you how delighted we are that you were able to find the time in your schedule to, to share some thoughts with us ma'am thank you so much well, thank you. That was the most amazingly epic description of my life I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, excellent. That, that's kind of my job here. I see everybody gets a superhero origin story. Awesome. Uh, Marie, before we get started, before I actually set the timer on our 20 minutes with you, I did have a question. Um, uh, you had cited that, you know, it, there was a, the, one of the blog posts was 10 things I want people to know about me. And you had cited your 16 foreign countries. And you also tagged onto the fact that this is a large part of what spurred your interest in photography. And yes. I'm just kind of curious, how does, I can kind of guess, but I'm going to let you say it, how does traveling to 16 foreign countries uh, stimulate a love of photography? 
well, the gist of it is that I used to think I didn't like photography very much. Like I had a camera as a kid and I would take it to summer camp and take stupid pictures of my friends and that was about it. But I was going to camp in some back corner of East Texas. There wasn't a lot to take pictures of. But when I started going to other parts of the world, I think a chunk of it is just that everything I was seeing was in some fashion new to me. And because it was new, I saw it in a different way than you look at the things that are around you in your daily life. To give a a kind of measured example of it, the first time that I went to Japan, I was there for only five days. Um, And this was actually the last trip I took with a film camera where I actually had to pay to have the pictures developed. (laughs) So... The, the number that I'm about to cite now is nothing to the number of pictures I take now that I'm doing it digitally. But in five days, I took 342 pictures. Sweet which, mother of Kodak. <laughs> yeah, when you're paying for development, that's a lot of pictures. And it was because I'd never been to Japan. I'd never been to East Asia. So absolutely everything I looked at was new. And it caught my eye in a way that, you know, if I'm just wandering around California, it doesn't. And in particular, that first trip to Japan, I happened to arrive in the middle of cherry blossom season in Kyoto. And the cherry trees there, they've been training them for like a thousand years to pose. (laughs) (laughs) Professional cherry trees, friends. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I, I kind of, well, I mean, Japanese people often are very interested in photography. So I would see like five guys with their tripods taking a photo of something. And then I'd go, oh, I need a photo of that too. Clearly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I would imagine then, and I, I it, it occurs to me that that experience of seeing something new and being driven to to capture it, to hold it, uh, uh, whether it's in pixels or, or on cellu- celluloid. Sure. That's probably <laughs> what it is. Um, that, that kind of is... Uh, Probably actually an excellent writing exercise as well. That that freshness and and excitement and and wow factor of seeing something. You kind of need to capture that in your writing as well. Yeah, well, and certainly um, I've been lucky enough to be able to travel to some of the places that I am writing about or places similar to what I'm writing about. Uh, Certainly for the Onyx Court series, I got to go to London repeatedly for research, which was amazingly useful. (laughs) But it's also just that the more you do photography, it does change the way that you see. Because I'm not, I I never thought of myself as any kind of visual artist. I'm not very good at drawing. I've never done painting or anything like that. But with photography, the more I did it, the more I found myself looking for not just, okay, here's a big shot of the inside of Notre Dame in Paris, but, ooh, I'm going to take a close-up shot of one of the wire frames that they've got all these tea light candles in, and some of them are burned out and some are still lit. I'm going to take a picture of that. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about how the telling detail is so important in writing. Photography has made me look for more visual telling details than I would have paid attention to before. Okay. I can see that. And also, photography is very much about the composition of the shot, not necessarily just the content of it, uh, which, again, speaks to that notion of narrative as well, the context and so on. Yeah. Yeah, because the composition, a lot of it is, where do you want the viewer's focus to be? And right. that's the same kind of question that you ask yourself with a story. Where do you want the reader to be focusing? Ooh, see? Now, we, we can wax rhapsodic on the merits of, of photography and other creative disciplines in service to the writer's craft, but... but the time ticks away. Thank you for that, Marie. I appreciate the, the, the clarification on that. I'm going to go ahead and set the clock so we can actually formally start our 20 minutes with Marie Brennan. And of course, we'll ignore it, as we always do. Poor clock. Uh, but it's there. It's set. It's good. All right. 
Marie, everyone on this call right now is an inveterate uh, game, role-playing game nerd. Let's just put that right on the table. Ms. Bilodeau, you, myself, we love this shit. Uh, uh, and I gotta say, your blog series, Dice Tales, is fabulous. It's it's illuminating. It's you 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 bring in uh, you bring out the depth and nuance of storytelling through role-playing, which actually, when I think about it, kind of flies in the face of that adage that every gamer who wants to be a writer is told is your games will make crappy stories. Don't use your games as stories. Um, but your Onyx Court series was based on a White Wolf game, uh, on the on the Changeling role-playing game that you guys were running at the time, as I understand. So, uh, clearly, you have found the secret. <laughs> or, or at least have stumbled upon something that's working for you. So, could you illuminate, and again, this is just your opinion, what, what defines good storytelling in a game and what's required to bring a, a sterling game experience into a literary format? Well, to some extent, I mean, my off-the-cuff answer to what makes good storytelling in a game is the same thing that makes good storytelling in any medium, which is what what does your audience enjoy, right? <laughs> which, okay. in the yeah. case of a game, the audience is the, the players, right? Everybody participating is the audience because you rarely have some stranger, like somebody who's not participating, just sitting in and listening, though sometimes it happens. Right. Um, so I, I understand that's not a helpful answer in some ways of, well, if your players <laughs> enjoy it, it's a good story. Um I mean, many of the elements are the same, right? But you know, good characterization and so forth, uh, you know, exciting plot, high stakes, all that kind of thing, that part doesn't change. But I think you have to pay attention to the way that the story is being told. Um, because the thing with games is that, number one, they're improvisational, right? So with right. a novel, whether you outline or not, you've got the chance to go back and then revise. So <laughs> if you go wandering off down this one subplot that ends up taking way longer than is actually interesting, with a novel, you go back and you can tighten that up, right? You can improve the pacing. I will say pacing is usually not the strong point of a role-playing game narrative. <laughs> it's, <laughs> completely lumpy and lopsided generally things drag on longer than they should or don't get as much development as you might have liked or whatever but you can play a lot of uh, well you can play a lot of games that's not really two senses of game here um, with the fact that the players know stuff that the characters don't so you can get like mileage out of that kind of thing in sort of the way that uh, if you think about like Greek tragedies or Shakespearean tragedies you get the prologue that comes out and says everything's gonna go to hell now let's find out how <laughs> You can do that kind of thing a lot in a game where your players know where you're going with the thing, but it's the getting there that's the fun part of it. Um, the the major thing is that, so they're improvisational and they're collaborative, which means that no single person controls it, right? And the best moments are where those come together in a completely unplanned way, right? So all you can do is try to create the conditions that will foster that. The moments where nobody decided in advance that X thing would happen, but it did and it was fantastic. <laughs> Can you can you actually how how does one foster that that kind of of collaborative spontaneity? Well, part of it is that I mean I tend to play with the sorts of people who do think of RPGs from the narrative side because one of the points I I make in Dice Tales is that RPGs are inherently kind of a hybrid of game with like rules and fairness and so on and an element of chance and all that kind of thing and narrative where it's more about the the shape of the story and you know who cares if the the challenge is that strong as long as you're enjoying it right that kind of thing right. uh, and it's 
you can take it in either direction and either one is fine, right? I'm not a very game-minded player myself because I don't want to roll badly and then, like, screw up something. Uh, <laughs> and for some reason, it makes a good story, right? But if it's like, this was the moment where that triumph was supposed to happen and then the dice just, you know, botched it, I don't like that. Um, but other people do, and I, I want to be clear, I think that's totally fine. From the narrative side, if you play with people who are narratively minded, then they're going to be keeping in the backs of their heads, and you can encourage this, um, things like, okay, well, it would be really hilarious if my character screwed this up right now. Or, <laughs> what if I just don't actually mention this thing that I probably should mention, but the story will be so much cooler if I don't. <laughs> Playful <laughs> you know, players, yes. Players who are willing to kind of deliberately throw monkey wrenches into the mix, even at their own expense, because they're going to enjoy watching things blow up. <laughs> Um, you know, whereas if you're looking at it more from a game, then it's about you want to succeed at things instead of go for the entertaining failure. Right. Uh, so that kind of thing helps. Um, and looking for moments where everybody is just kind of thinking subconsciously of, oh, we could tie these two things together and then they're going to resolve together. So let me see if I can find a way to steer my character toward that other thing over there. Right. You know, those kinds of looking for ways to interweave things to involve your character with other people's plots all of that kind of thing helps create fertile conditions for those serendipitous moments okay we'll be back with more of our conversation with marie brennan after this brief promotional break Nineteen forty, chicago the nazis may have lost the war but the legacy of their occult projects still stumble the streets Ghouls and zombies live in their own tiny ghetto where necromancy and crime thrive. Marcus Sage, veteran of the war and private investigator, is called upon to search the haystack of the undead for the needle of a missing briefcase. A small task, but one that leads through the world of crooked politics, organized crime, and the dark tendrils of necromancy itself, to the middle of explosive repercussions that threaten to burn the entire city to the ground. From author James Silverstein comes the hard-boiled gumshoe and zombie story that you've been waiting for. Necropolis, book one in the case files of the undead. Look for it on Amazon and other fine ebook retailers on September 2nd. And tell them Marcus Sage sent you. But just remember, in the Necropolis, everyone wants to hear you scream. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Marie Brennan. So how do you take a cool game experience and translate it into a literary one? So the key to it fundamentally is that when you know gamers get told, don't write up your game, it's going to be a terrible novel, you don't want to write up the whole game, right? Because like I said, the pacing is terrible. There's lots of stuff where, okay, that happened because it was some mechanical requirement that this thing had to be done. All of the PCs are frequently going around doing everything together like they're joined at the hip, right? (laughs) These are things that lead themselves to a good novel, generally speaking. So everything that I've done that was ever based partly on a game, it's because some element of the game seemed like it would make a good story. So to take the uh, the Onyx Court books, Midnight Never Come is the one that's the most closely related to the game that I had run. 
and really the core of that one was there were a pair of NPCs from the game whose backstory that the PCs were then having to deal with the resolution of it um, that really intrigued me. It had to do with there being a fairy queen who was like the dark mirror of Elizabeth I. Um, and this whole like fairies interfering with mortal politics and her history with this one mortal man. So I looked at that and said, okay, those two characters, that, that can work as a story. <laughs> so I put out. And then there's a few moments in the novel that are analogs to something that happened in the game. Um, there's a moment where the wild hunt attacks uh but in the game it was uh if anybody knows changeling one of the characters was a scathich and she got a whole contingent of how scathich to attack so different group attacking but kind of similar circumstances of why did this happen because the heroes needed a diversion um so taking just the little pieces and then what you have to be able to do and this is the tough part is figure out how are you going to like drop everything that isn't those key bits let go of everything else and then ask yourself what do i need to create that will support the pieces that i want to tell this story about how do i make that work as an independent thing right right and and that as you say that is the greatest challenge right there because so many of those moments the emotional charge uh, of those spontaneous collaborative moments that's heady stuff that's that's sweet sweet liquor of of the creative spirit and and i think the instinct very much is that oh god i want i want to share that feeling that i had in that moment with the thing and put that in a book and it doesn't always happen that way yeah a lot of times what you need to do is say okay that moment's really cool but the things that made it up, that's not really relevant to the core of what I'm trying to do here. And so you just have to accept that you will create other emotionally awesome moments in the story, maybe even something that recreates that emotion under completely different circumstances, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, once you, have, once you have the shape of it, that feeling that you can strive for, then you just apply your writerly mojo to, to guiding your readers to that same emotional peak. That makes perfect sense. I love that. Marie Billado, <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> I, I've been dominating the conversation, ma'am, as I have been wont to do. Uh, I'm getting out of the way. I know you've got questions for our guest host as well. Yes, definitely. First of all, I must compliment you on your selection of your pen name. It is a beautiful name. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. Thank you. Uh, one of the questions I really wanted to ask you is, you have this talent for weaving multiple plot points together to create a really cohesive and strong story. Like uh, if we look at a natural history of uh, dragons, you have a scientific journey, a woman versus society, a, bud a budding romance, political uh, intrigue as well. Um, so you have all of these things that are woven together and you somehow make and this is going to come out probably completely wrong, but when you think about like women going to study uh, ancient dragon bones type of thing like it could be very very boring <laughs> forgive me saying it and, no, and you write it in, in a journal way right so but the way you put it together all of these plots come together to create this fascinating beautiful well-paced anybody who has not read this yet please do so <laughs> yes Sorry. Uh, and I'm intrigued and fascinated by how you got to your concept into something that was so, such a beautiful blooming garden of flowers. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, that's the kind of question that's insanely hard to answer because so much oh, of that, yeah, so much of that aspect of the craft, at least for me, is done kind of on a subconscious level, right? Um, the writer Marissa Lingen actually used a term once that I find really, really helpful for 
trying to describe this process. Um, proprioception is your sense of where your own body is in space, right? I don't need to look at my foot to know where my foot is. I just know because of proprioception. And she used that as a metaphorical way of talking about stories. That over time, as you write more, you develop kind of proprioception about your story. That you know, like, okay, I can kind of eyeball, I'm probably about, like, you know, 15,000 words from the end of the book. How do I know that? I just... I've developed that sense over time, right? right? Or, oh, these two things are too close together. There needs to be more breathing room between them. And that's something that I really don't think can be directly taught. I think that it's something that you just develop by writing more and having more sense of things. And that ties in partly with what you're asking, I think, because if I say, okay, I've got these different things going on, how do I bring them together? That's almost a spatial question in my mind. I almost think of it in spatial terms of like, okay, well, these two things are too far apart. They, they're not going to connect unless there's something I put in between them that would you know, bring them together and bridge that gap. Um, and some of it also, like you were talking about the, the different elements that go into the story of political intrigue and like, you know, this woman against society and scientific study of dragons. Um, yeah, I've read a fair bit of history, uh, and the more that you do that, the more you see how, in reality, those things aren't disconnected anyway, because, like, the political intrigue, well, she's traveling to a foreign country to study dragons in a kind of Victorian-type society. That's immediately calling on, like, colonialism, imperialism. You can't write that without putting politics in unless you're really just gutting it completely, right? <laughs> so there's some politics that immediately come with that. And similarly with the the gendered aspect of things, it's um, like the modern concept of intersectionality, that when we talk about sexism, you kind of can't address that completely without also talking about racism, without also mm -hmm. talking about economic class and all the rest of it. That's true in these kinds of situations as well, that when you bring in one thing, yeah, you can't talk about Victorian science without looking at the fact that, well, who was doing the science? It was mostly rich white men. Um, and then who were the people that were not fitting that category and how were they able to work within it anyway? Sure. That's interesting. Did you find that you had a hard time sometimes focusing your story because there are so many possible avenues to go down? Not so much in this case, much more with the Onyx Court books, honestly, because with those, they're set in real history. And so I would come across something and be like, oh my God, I didn't even <laughs> think about that thing was going out at the same time. <laughs> with these, I think it helped because, as you said, the, the memoirs of Lady Trent, they are written as memoirs. It's Isabella telling her story to a readership in her own world. And so because I was so firmly embedded in a single character's perspective, it was easier for me to follow what Isabella would be interested in uh, and mm. not you know, go off down too many rabbit holes. She'll go down little like brief verbal rabbit holes because one of the <laughs> things about writing Victorian first person is you can digress. It's so much fun. <laughs> That's true. That makes totally sense. Totally legit. <laughs> yeah, she will just fall off down some little rabbit hole. And, and one of the sad things about, I, I have now finished the fifth and final book of that series. I'm like, oh, I don't get to write that voice anymore. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> yeah. I, I did get a little sniffly when I wrote the end of the fifth book. <laughs> oh, well, I can't wait to read it. That's exciting. And, and well, while you were talking, you know, you were mentioning earlier with the photography that part of it was trying to figure out where you wanted to focus on an item, you know, like you mentioned the tea lights, which was a beautiful imagery in itself. Um, and so do you think that some of your other pursuits, like even the swimming, the, um, the ballet, the uh, photography, that that helped you find focus? Because a lot of those, it strikes me that they're all about the minutia of the moment. Yeah, I'll say certainly um, both ballet and karate share the thing that 
Uh, to do them well, you've got to think very, very closely about how your body moves. Um, you know, things like, okay, it's not just step forward and punch. It's here's what my hip needs to be doing. Here's what my knee needs to be doing. Here's the timing of exactly when is my foot going versus my fist. Um, a lot of very, very close focus on the precise details of your movement. Um, I actually really enjoy writing fight scenes. I've, I've even got a little ebook about them, yeah. cleverly called Writing Fight Scenes, because I'm <laughs> super creative with that title. You must have agonized um, over that for hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It took a um, but yeah, because I, I like thinking about movement. I've also written some like dance stuff into some of my books, uh, just getting that sort of aspect into it. Because again, that's something that, um, you know, sometimes you, you get that in stories, but a lot of times it seems to be glossed over. And I like getting that physicality in there when I can. Sure. That's and, cool. And that ties in with the whole, the full sensory experience that all writers strive for. You get, you get the body, you get the senses, you get the touch, the smell, all of that. Uh, which you do beautifully. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually. First of all, before we go further, what was the, what was that term one more time? Because I was too caught up in the in the concept to actually write it down. Oh, proprioception. Proprioception. See, and all of my listeners are going, "Thank you, Dave," because I want to write <laughs> that down to proprioception. That's a that's no, a, but the, the listeners can cheat though. They can pause the thing. Oh yeah, they can just roll back. I suppose. All right, so that was for me. <laughs> that was blatantly for me. <laughs> um. Marie, as you were describing that, as you were describing the the, the moving into uh, a foreign country, a foreign culture, and, and the realization of colonialism and the other political issues in there, that kind of leads me very nicely to the other, the next question I wanted to ask you, um, uh, related to a lot of your short stories, uh, including that first one that you published, White Shadow. Those are those are set in the Nine Lands, and. Yes. Uh, you you did an interview for Fantasy Book Critic back in July of 2008, and you said that uh, the Nine Lands was created in direct reaction to all the fantasy worlds where everybody speaks the language and has essentially the same culture, and that real history isn't like that. And you went on to say that when you were building the Nine Lands, you, you drew a shape on a piece of paper, declared it a continent, and then set out to create a continent's worth of different nations and cultures. Now, <clears throat> world building is one of my jams. Uh, uh, or addictions, as the case may be. Um, I would fist bump you if we were not on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Virtual fist bump, right on. Uh, so, and and the the richness, drawing that tapestry of, of diversity and authenticity, I think is probably one of the biggest challenges that both gamers and writers share uh, in the crafting of their settings. Can you... You know, how? what was your next step after you drew the big continent and said about, okay, I'm going to put a, a, a kaleidoscope of diverse and authentic cultures in there. What's the next step on that? So in that particular instance, which I, I won't necessarily hold that up as my uh, best effort at world building because yeah. I was like 17 at the time, but um, <laughs> I, the next thing that I did was I said, okay, here's my continent. And then I just went around that map and basically dropped in languages, um, not in the sense that I... What, what I did, this is a, a good like world building trick. Um, I chose the the phonology, the kind of sounds that you hear in a given language um, from some real world languages to use that as my model. So it's like over here in this area, I'm going to use Chinese phonology and then up in this opposite corner, it's going to be like Irish phonology and over here it's going to be Hindi and this bit's going to be Spanish and that's going to be Russian. And I literally went around and just kind of plunked those down on the map. Um, and said, okay, this is what I'm going to use for everything that I'm naming here. I'm going to model it on the the sounds and letters and so on that you see in that real world language. 
And one of the benefits of doing that, it didn't mean I was taking the whole culture, um, like the the Voronoi, who are the um, like uh, the ones that I modeled on Russian language. I actually don't have any short stories about them, but culturally, yes. I was looking at them more as like more like maybe the Plains Indians or something, uh, just because of the environment that they lived in. But you know, doing that by putting those linguistic kind of center pegs in the middle of each thing, it made it a lot easier for me to remember that they should be different, right? Because if you see like the uh, Jianglian and the Eldansk, those sound like those are different people, <laughs> right? right. And, and also then along with that, it was, and this was the part where I, I didn't do a terribly good job of it because I was 17, but the environment being different in different places. Um, so like both the Voronoi and the Sahasrans live in kind of plains areas, but one is very much up in a colder northern area and the other is pretty directly modeled on Texas. Um, <laughs> so like saying the languages are different in these places and they don't all live in the same environment. Those two things were kind of the touchstones for me to say, okay, whatever society I set here, it's not going to look like the one that lives in the tropical rainforest <laughs> or out on these like oceanic isles. Okay. <laughs> Okay, and and so so that's that's awesome. The, the the language, the sound, and also I would imagine just from your your background and your 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 studies, those those sounds keyed in to a wealth of understanding and awareness. The you know, that the 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 Skatskinsky of of Russian will will instantly populate in your in your subconscious in your conscious the, the 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 image of the big onion towers and the cold winters and the gray skies and so on and so and you start talking like you're a Russian as you go so <laughs> yeah that's that's kind of what I did with the memoirs because anybody who reads them you can see like she goes to Vistrana which is based on Romania but their overlords are from Bolskevo which is again a, a Russian analog a uh, second book she goes to Bayembe which is like West African I based it a lot on like Mali and Ghana and so on, um, and then down into the Mulish Swamp, which is much more the Congo. Third book, she goes to what is essentially Polynesia. Like I use those things more directly in the memoirs um, because, yeah, if you go through, you can see that pretty much everything in that world is in some fashion an analog of a real world place. The Nine Lands were different in that I tried not to, at that time I was not trying to, and I'd, I'd like to not go in this direction. Um, that if I say, okay, this area, the language is based on Hindi, but the landscape is more like Texas, and this one thing in their religion I got from a Minoan statue that's actually probably a fake, but for my purposes it doesn't matter, <laughs> um, and this other thing that I got from Irish folklore, like not taking the whole package, but instead just using the language as a, a way to kind of break myself out of the defaults and then from there building something that isn't a direct analog of any one place. Excellent. And I could, I could see each writer, you know, for you it was language. I could see other writers, it could be, you know, artwork or statuary. It could be, you know, jewel, jewelry or, or clothing or ornaments. But everybody, I think, will have some sort of touchstone that embodies a, a cultural distinction for them. And to set that as your as your line in the sand as it were is this this is where I'm starting from and then just organically fleshing that out and incorporating all the other levels that, that comprise world building that's fabulous I love that Marie we're running out of time Marie Bilodeau Jesus <laughs> we're, we're, we're actually we're over time but you know what I do, do you have one more question for Marie Brennan <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I, I have a lot of questions for myself too, but but I do have one. 
mostly about life choices. But uh, <laughs> I all. do have one more, and it's just I think it might be a quick one. Uh, but in um, one of the things that I thought you did beautifully, and if you could just touch on it briefly, is uh, Isabella has both her young and her old voice represented in her memoirs, and the voices do tend do manage to be distinctive regardless of position. Did you do that um, on purpose, or did it come naturally? That was one that really just came straight out of the subconscious. I got the idea for this story. I started typing and within like a paragraph, the voice was there. It just, I don't know what it was. I mean, I'd read a lot of Victorian stuff in the course of researching with Fate Conspire, which is the the fourth and last of the Onyx court books. That one takes place in the the Victorian period. So I'd certainly been steeping myself in a lot of Victorian stuff, but it really was just like the, the character voice was there from the moment I started typing. And that's one of those, like there's serendipity in writing as well as in gaming. Just sometimes <laughs> things click and your brain says, yes, we're going to do this now. Yep. That's I, cool. That's I cool. think every writer sits down hoping for that bit of serendipity when the fingers start flying on the keyboard. Well, every so often it's inconvenient having mentioned with Fake Conspire um, at one point, I think this might have been while I was in India because I remember I was sitting in a car being driven somewhere and so like out between cities. So I'm just kind of staring out the window, listening to my iPod and it's on shuffle and a song comes up and my brain says, this is how With Fate Conspire is going to end. This is before I'd started writing it. I'm like, um, I don't know what the ending of the book is. And subconscious said, I don't care. It just needs to feel like this piece of music right here. <laughs> so I, I kind awesome. of had this feeling that like, okay, whatever I did with my story, it needed to aim toward that obscure like piece of music, musical target. That was the feeling I needed to create somehow. Easily <laughs> favorite that one, put it in its own playlist and build yeah. from there. Absolutely. And for the record, it was um, it was a, a piece from the score to the movie The Fountain. The piece, Ooh, uh, yeah. Death is, yeah, Death is the Road to Awe is the name of the piece. That was basically the end of the book before I even knew what the end was. <laughs> wow. You know, I think I think as as if you do anything long enough, writing, uh, uh, painting, photography, whatever. I think ultimately we start cultivating within our awareness these little sub-processes that are always working, whether we're aware of them or not. And occasionally when when life experience aligns with those sub-processes, you get moments like that where it's like, dude, hold on to this. You're going to need this later. Yeah, and I usually say my subconscious is smarter about storytelling than my conscious brain. (laughs) If I have a feeling like that pop up, it's a sign that like, yes, no, this is a good idea and I need to find a way to make it work. Yep, there you go. There you go. Well, look, guys, this has been fabulous, but the the clock has actually invoked the unseelie court and has launched into a ritual of of dark and sinister purpose, I'm sure, uh, directed towards me. So I can only assume that means we're out of time. Uh, Marie Brennan, this has been a delight. My brain is full. So is my heart. uh, uh, And I'm sure for for Ms. Billado as well. uh, uh, Thank you so much for making the time. This has been a delight. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Marie, holy crap, uh, my, my, my writer's toolkit kind of is bursting at the seams after that 20-esque minutes of conversation. Uh, what, what, what are you taking away from this that, that uh, is standing out for you? You know, what I like the best about it, honestly, is the uh, definitely the stick with something and perseverance. That's definitely sticking out. But also, what's different about it, too, is the sticking with it to perfection. The the almost, uh, and you know, uh, Marie might not agree with this particular one, but the almost obsessive 
obsessive nature of just perfecting one move, which translates into, which kind of has a wave into other places in the artistic domain as well. So I think that was wonderful. I can absolutely see that, you know, and, and, and perfection there's there's a word to put in heavy air quotes oh i know and i put that in i did i was like flapping my arms <laughs> is that the way you do there's... air quotes in canada you flap your oh, arms yeah. we people do. must it, get it, hurt well you know it keeps us warm in the winter i was gonna say they, they've got their hands in mittens so you know not a lot of uh, dexterity oh, there there you go you gotta flap your arms because you can't see the fingers i get it we it. have to move somehow so people can tell we're doing air quotes. <laughs> but, but that pursuit of, of perfection, and, and it's perfection within yourself. It's not an objective perception, per- perfection, but it's, it's, I have learned this as much as I feel I must. Uh, uh, and that creates those, those subconscious connectivities within your own awareness that we were just talking about. So yeah, absolutely. I'm totally down with that. For, for me, it was a weird little side detail that really just kind of pinged in my brain um, when we were talking about gaming and the, the it was the idea, and I'm not even sure Marie actually brought it up, uh, uh, but it was something that, that I, occurred to me. In gaming, there are two types of players. There are players who sit down to succeed and players who sit down to play. Oh. And those two objectives are dramatically different. And I'm, I'm still unpacking why that is so kind of like wow to me right now, but I think that it can apply to also writing, uh, uh, that you can write to succeed or you can write to play. And and the playfulness factor of writing should always, I think, should, again, there's that word I rarely use, uh, uh, but you know, if it, I think it can be a powerful and, and positive influence on one's writing experience uh, uh, to be playful as you go about it. So. I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And I love being playful, so I can get behind that. Yeah, you are You are the queen of the glitter cannon, no question. Uh, <laughs> playfulness is your middle name. Uh, friends, that was playful. That was fun. Uh, uh, your heads are full. Your, 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 your pencils were scratching. I can hear it all the way through the internet. Uh, uh, so, so thank you so much for tuning in for that. Now, dig it. Uh, uh, this does not end here. Technically, the interview does, but the awesomeness with Marie Brennan does not. In seven days, we're going to bring back Ms. Brennan. We're going to bring back Ms. Bilodeau. Uh, I'll, of course, be here because you can't get rid of me. Uh, and we're going to add uh, uh, another factor, an X factor, uh, a courageous guest writer. Uh, uh, actually, something interesting, but I'm not going to tell you about it now uh, next week, who's going to introduce a story idea that we are going to then brainstorm to to the froth and delight of all. Uh, this is the meat and potatoes of the roundtable. In seven days, that happens. Do come back and check that out, because it's going to be fabulous. Uh, but it's seven days. I know, that's a long damn time. Marie, help me out. Uh, help our listeners out. Holy crap. What, what can they do between now and seven days from now to make that time just fly by? You know, I'm going to suggest, and this is totally inspired by Marie Brennan, I'm going to suggest that you, over the next seven days, go somewhere new to you in your surroundings and observe some wonderful details. Brilliant. Yes, absolutely. And find the newness. Uh, uh, seize mm-hmm. the, you know, look at that freshness, that excitement that you see when you find that new thing. That's fabulous. I love that. And that kind of dovetails very nicely into my usual thing, which is you find what you're looking for. Uh, so look for the details. <laughs> look for the wow. <laughs> look for the hell yeah. Look for the oh my God. Uh, and if you go looking for that, friends, I guarantee you, you will find it. 
Uh, we will be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.